0: The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com Well,
1: Douglas, this is it. The most exciting weekend of our lives. You know,
0: if we can really prove that ghosts do exist, I'll die a happy man. See you inside. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, And they are runs past that following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, And your host have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast to a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shirky. With me is Thrasher. Hello,
1: and we are in God's Nintendo game.
0: Yes, we are talking about Waxwork to Lost in Time, the direct-to-video sequel to Waxwork, although it was not meant to be direct-to-video, I think just for budgetary reasons they decided to uh, release it that way. And uh, again, written and directed by Anthony Hickox, starring Zach Gallagher, Alexander Gurov, Monica Schneer, Martin Kemp, and Bruce Campbell. Um also has David Carradine in a brief part. And yeah, th-
1: this movie is an embarrassment of riches as far as the cast goes.
0: Yeah, a lot of fun cameos, including uh, Drew Barrymore I thought was amusing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and and that, when so I watched this uh, with my wife the other night. We actually she demanded that we rewind the movie to verify that that was really Drew Barrymore.
0: I mean, most cameos say Blink and You Miss It. This one really, it's in a crazy sequence towards the end, but we'll get there. Um, and, yeah, this is a film. I i had heard of Waxwork 1, but hadn't seen it before watching it for this show. Um, the show. But the Blockbuster videos I used to work at never had a copy of Waxwork 2. Hmm. But I think you mentioned, Thrasher, you had seen this on television.
1: I think, I, I think I, this is another one of the many, many, many movies I saw in USA's Up All Night or Up All Night, depending on which day of the week you are watching it on. Because <laughs> so, so much of this movie was really, really familiar to me. Um, so I'm, I am positive that I saw it before in the early 90s, but I couldn't give you a date. <laughs>
0: And I would say, just overall, I, I feel this one's a bit more of a comedy than the first one, a bit more a ton in cheek. Um, although it's, they certainly feel like the same series, you know, I don't think they went overboard with the tone.
1: No, I mean it, it. It kind of works. I mean, they're they're just having a lot of fun with the weird premise that they've given themselves, and that that shows in everything that happens in the film.
0: And uh, listeners might re- or yeah, what do I say? Viewers, no one's watching this. Listeners might recall in um, the end of the original wax work, uh, teenagers Mark and Sarah leave the Burning Wax Museum, and, uh, and they're followed by the disembodied hand of, of the villain from the first movie. And this one picks right where they left off, but it has a different actress as Sarah. We have Monica Schneer.
1: Yeah, and I found out I did a little research on the trivia, which I think I'm going to make a, a bigger part of the show going forward because I really liked I really liked doing research for this one. Uh, and apparently, the uh, actress who played uh, Sarah in the first film, Deborah Foreman, apparently she was dating Anthony Hickox at the time. And between Waxwork and Waxwork 2 Lost in Time, they had a really bad breakup. And even though she was offered the part, she turned it down.
0: Oh, okay. I was wondering that. Because um, I think uh, Monica Isara, is uh, compared to the actress in the first film, it isn't quite as good. I mean, she's not terrible, though. But it's um, she doesn't look like the actress, which, I mean, there's only so much you can do about that. But it uh, there's something in the first film, especially in those Marquis de Sade scenes that we're really uh, pushing for something interesting, and here the character, I think, uh, comes off as a bit more flat. Well, she does a lot of wig acting. Yes, and and there's a lot more wigs in this film, and I, I will give it credit that the different scenarios they find themselves in are more ambitious, I think, than in the first movie.
1: No, though that's true. They pull out a number of stops in this film. And I, gotta, I, I really have to give them credit for beginning this movie immediately where the previous movie ends and how the initial conflict is immediately Sarah Brightman is on trial. Because this is something that you never see in, in horror movies or even horror comedies like this. Is anyone facing legal repercussions for the shady stuff they do in previous movies? So I love that she is on trial for the murder of Mr. Lincoln and for burning down the waxwork.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of two things, one of which is the uh, season finale for Seinfeld, the series finale, uh, mind you, for Seinfeld, where the characters had to own up to all the terrible crimes they've done throughout the sitcom. Yeah, and it, although it does make me wonder, why
1: isn't, uh, why isn't uh, Mark on trial? Is it just because his family's rich and powerful and nobody charged him with anything?
0: I think that's the assumption, but that is strange, isn't it? Because they both were in uh, the wax work doing, um, you know, basically murdering people, albeit evil creatures from a alternate dimension thing. Like, yeah, it's... And, um, however, you know, something with the original film, it, it starts with a bunch of uh, young adults or kids or whatever you want to call them going to a wax a wax work, wax museum, as we'd say in the United States. And, um, when they cross the, uh, the, the boundary, they get sucked into the world of whatever the, the wax display is. And in this one, you don't have such a neat conceit. I think this one, it's really forced the way they get people sucked into the different scenarios. That being said, once it, once the plot starts going, uh, it's all good. But yeah, but let's start from the beginning. As you mentioned, it starts right, um, after the first film, and they drop Sarah off at her house, and the zombie hand of the David Warner character follows her in the house. And what fo- and what follows is this real slapstick sequence that really uh, reminded me of Evil Dead Two.
1: Oh no, it's it's clearly a tribute to Evil Dead Two. And so, two, and two things that stand out is that one, in the first film, Sarah Brightman was upper class like all the other characters, but here, her she lives in a she lives in a tenement with her abusive alcoholic father.
0: Yeah, it's like a Jerry Springer style retcon, um, it, which I think makes the character more interesting.
1: Oh, <laughs> true. Oh, he's also—if uh, you notice—there's a brief snippet of a uh, sci-fi film that he, that her father's watching on TV. That is from the uh, that is from the horror comedy Lobster Man from Mars.
0: Can you describe that? Because it sounds like you've seen it. I've never even heard of it. Uh-
1: If yeah, it's the uh, the it's the premise is that it's it's a it's a horror comedy where a studio it's a does does a producers where they buy a bunch of actors and actresses to star in a really purposefully shitty B movie uh, and it's all done as a tax write off but then somebody starts killing people who work on the film. Any good? Yes and no. Like a, a lot of the humor is kind of like inside baseball. It's like a lot of the jokes are stuff that like you have to have watched a lot of low budget movies or or, or know how low budget movies are made to get. Uh, there's also a lot of there's also a lot of casual nudity. I think the nudity is probably the primary reason the movie was made. It you know what? I think few... it was one sort of Roger Corman's early uh, direct to video efforts. Now that I think of it.
0: Oh, it could be. I mean, certainly the direct to video business was booming in the eighties in the 90s, when um, VHS was the format of choice. And, I mean, mean, yeah, this whole sequence with with the hand at the beginning might be some of my favorite stuff in the movie. I mean, you you get this ridiculous imagery of uh, the hand kills Sarah's stepfather, which is part of the reason why she goes to trial, but also, like, the the hand goes and starts, like, throwing hot dogs and ketchup and mustard and buns in her face as she's, uh, Sarah's doing these, Delightful 1950s style screams.
1: Oh god, yeah, and the music they st- they put a little sting from "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" as it's throwing the hot dogs. At her. Yes, um, and I and I, I- love that <laughs> bit where where the the disembodied hand has a hammer and is just repeatedly whacking her father on the head. That is like one of the most. That's the second most evil dead thing in this sequence. The most evil dead thing is when Sarah shoves the hand in the garbage disposal, turns it on, and there's just a fountain of blood (laughs) that covers everything in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, like in the original Waxwork and Waxwork 2, they they don't shy away from the blood effects. Um, Although they're still surprisingly chaste about the nudity, which is bizarre, uh, especially considering the time period when this was made.
1: Well, you know, part of, part of me wonders, did they expect that they were going to sell this to basic cable where the nudity would just have to be edited out anyway, so they didn't bother?
0: Um, yeah, I don't know, or sometimes you, you hear stories in movies where they'll shoot a lot of stuff with nudity uh, just to get by the censors, where the censors get so freaked out by the nudity they don't notice all the other stuff going on. I love that tactic. They, uh, my favorite version of that tactic, and I think we talked about it on the show, I think a, a year or two ago when we discussed the Scooby-Doo movies, is for Scooby-Doo 1. Um, the, the writer, James Gunn, and the director, uh, whose name I can't recall at the moment, um, it had a scene where, uh, oh geez, uh, what are the name of the two women from Scooby-Doo?
1: Daphne and Velma,
0: please. Thank, thank you. I can't remember. I haven't <laughs> I, I don't I haven't thought of Scooby-Doo since we watched the movies two years ago. Daph, thank you. Daphne I and th-
1: Velma. I think of Scooby Doo like every week.
0: Oh, okay, <laughs> I can't just escape it. <laughs> Daphne and Velma um, smoke pot and have and start making out uh, in a lesbian scene, <laughs> and and they included that just so they would be uh, the censors would be distracted from all the pot jokes in the film, and maintain like a PG rating or whatever it was. So
1: it's so shocking that that not only does that work, but that that tactic continues to work. <laughs>
0: It does, and I, I do wonder, you know, do they even have to consider ratings when so much movies and TV are uh, direct to uh, streaming services now?
1: Uh, well, no. Well, it's like the the M- the MPAA is it, it it was it's it is stodgy and archaic by design.
0: It is. It is. Um... There was a really good documentary called something like this. Film is not yet rated, or something along those lines. Oh, that's ten, a brilliant film! I love that ago. they
1: do bother trying to identify who is ra- rating these
0: movies by sometimes it literally digging through the trash and uh, yeah, doing all detective work. Anyway, back to wax work too. Yeah,
1: so um, I want to I want to talk yeah. about this this trial because um, because it is it is it is fun that I, I, I'm a sucker for for trial scenes and. Like I love that, that Sarah's whole defense really does hinge on the existence of the supernatural, which only makes her seem absolutely crazy. Um, but I want to I give a shout-out. Her defense attorney is Juliet Mills, who uh, listeners might remember as the witch Tabitha Lennox from the soap opera Passions, which I talk about way too much on this show
0: was that a memorable character from the show
1: Oh absolutely I mean, she uh, she was she was very often the show's primary antagonist the whole the inciting incident for the show is that when uh, when the town of Harmony was a was a British colony she was burned at the stake, but cursed several of the people who were responsible for her getting burned. And then she's reincarnated. You find out throughout the show that she's that she uh, is, and several of the people she cursed are reincarnated every like fifty years or so. And she makes it her her job to make their lives miserable. Now she does have something of a redemption arc uh, as the as the show stretched on, but it was just a wonderful camp performance. And uh, Denise, uh, or sorry, Juliet Mills brings a little bit of that same camp to her role as the defense attorney.
0: Well, there you go. Um,
1: she's also oh, she's also the sister of Haley Mills, and you rem- may remember Haley Mills and Haley Mills in the Parent the Trap. Parent
0: trap, the original Parent Trap. We should point out. Um, but yeah, so good bit of trivia there. So yeah, after the trial scene I think is broadly comedic because one of the attorneys or something is drawing a a stick figure of um, Sarah in a noose.
1: Yeah, (laughs) no one's (laughs) on her side. No. um, Also, the judge uh, was in the first film as the uh, lecturer who kept talking about Nazis.
0: Oh, the professor, interesting. Yeah, so you after this very sort of broad opening, it the, the plot actually starts resembling uh, more of the first film where you're hopping through different scenarios. Uh, well, yeah, because so I, I yeah. guess
1: Mark has paid uh, Sarah's bail because w- af- when the trial adjourns for the day, they just walk out. She doesn't go into custody or anything. <laughs>
0: Feels like a scene is missing there, doesn't it? It, it kind of
1: does. But anyway, they decide to go to uh, they decide to go to Patrick Mcnee's house. The uh, you know the, the kindly old man slash paranormal investigator who helped them out in the first film and died when the waxworks burned down. He sacrificed himself. So they're puttering around his house and they find, this, uh, they find this film camera and it's got a filmed message from Patrick McNee uh, explaining that he's left his entire fortune to Mark so that Mark can go on uh, fighting the supernatural. Uh, but also, this is something that I, I absolutely love is that Patrick McNee's uh, dialogue, oh, Sir Wilford is his character's name, uh, so much of his dialogue foreshadows stuff that happens throughout the film.
0: Yeah, and it's nice to see Patrick Mcnee, even if he isn't in the same scene physically with them. I mean, this trope of you—you you watch a, a film after the will—it it reminds me of Brewster's Millions, really. This uh, <laughs> movie with uh, I think John Candy and um, Richard Pryor, right?
1: You know, I—I I, shocking confession, I have never seen Brewster's Millions.
0: Uh, it's not great, but it's um, you know an interesting attempt at a comedy. Directed by um, the the same guy who did uh, Streets of Fire, and he wrote Alien and all this stuff. It's a weird trace for a director for a comedy, but it's okay. It has it's nice to see John Candy. I'll give it that. Cool. Um, Anyhow, yeah. But that you have this thing where they watch this video, and uh, yeah, it's a fun little scene. I could have used. I could always use more of Patrick Mcnee. He had such a fun energy about him in the first film, and we get him later uh, in the movie in the form of a voiceover.
1: Uh, um, yes, and, and there's a there's a, a one line in particular about that voiceover that I'll point out when we get there. But one of the things is that, and this is this is one of those things where I am both delighted by it and frustrated by it whenever it comes out, where where a character is needlessly cryptic because he's left everything to to Mark, and then he says, you know, if you want all the secrets, uh, just you know, ask Alice or whatever. He makes a reference to Alice in Wonderland, which uh, Sarah immediately decodes. As you know, being about reference to Alice through the Looking Glass, and she's he's got this Alice in Wonderland chessboard. She removes the Alice piece, the chessboard like lifts up, and then the uh, uh, the nearest mirror opens, and it's a secret passageway to uh, a vaults full of occult paraphernalia.
0: Yeah, one of which is this magical device that looks a bit like a compass, and it lets them. Uh, travel to these different worlds.
1: Yeah, it's the Locket of Solomon and it allows somebody to travel through time, and that apparently uh, Sir, Sir Wilfred at various points travel through time to fight evil. Um, which I guess, you know, you have to have a way into into these scenarios, although it does raise questions of how time travel works, because uh, it's... I'll, I'll, I guess I'll go into the time travel physics later, but did you notice some of the other things that are in Sir Wilfred's vault? No. All right. So one of the things in there is the crate that the Nazis keep the Ark of the Covenant in. In uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> sure. uh, there is also a. Uh, there's also some Jack the Ripper uh, memorabilia. There's some stuff that foreshadows things that happen later in the film. But there's also a glass case, and in the glass case is a wig and a key to a wig, a knife, and a key to one of the rooms at the Bates Motel.
0: Uh, those are pretty neat references, and it's not surprising considering how much Anthony Hickox packs both these films with homages to other films.
1: Oh yeah, and that was actually one of one of my favorite things: these just naked
0: homages to, to other movies. I, and I, you know, the, this little compass device to get them from place to place, it's it's forced. But on the other hand, I I don't know. Like, what do you do? Do you have them say there is another wax work and in, in London? Why don't you go visit that? And 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 check out the uh, remaining uh, you know scenarios with more evil creatures in there well like, that is
1: that is the interesting thing because like a, a lesser sequel would have just had another waxwork i i kind of like that e- even though storytelling wise it does the exact same thing it puts people into these horror vignettes i love that they come up with a different conceit for how that works
0: yeah it's um and, and I like that they don't spend too much time trying to explain why it works. You just have to accept it and 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 go with it.
1: Yeah, the world building doesn't become excessive until the
0: final act, right? Where it kind of no. Um, we'll talk about that when we get there. But yeah.
1: but but they come up with this idea that you know. Well, wait a minute. We could use if we could travel through time. We could use this to uh, we could use this to to prove you innocent in court and. I kind of love that their idea to pro- to prove that she's innocent in court is to prove the existence of the supernatural rather than travel back in time so that she can be seen somewhere other than the crime scene and have an alibi.
0: Yeah, or maybe travel back in time to uh, the climax of the first film and, like, destroy the hand for good. Yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> It seems like there's a simpler way they could have done this than, like, uh, oh, let's go to Frankenstein Land and Alien World and uh, King Arthur and all these things. Well, they don't
1: exactly try to go those places. Just when when they fiddle with it, it randomly sends them to those places. But, yeah, so they... they, uh, Mark fiddles with the uh, Solomon's Locket. It opens a doorway through time. They both go through, but then they get separated as they fall down a corridor. We never see again. Um, And part of, like, what gets them separated is these these stop-motion bat demons show up and carry Sarah away. But when Mark right. comes right. through the other side of the vortex, he's in like a 1930s version of the Frankenstein story. Dr. Frankenstein is there. And this is something is that when he travels through time, when but they both travel through time, they arrive with period appropriate clothing and hairstyles. And it makes me wonder, are they are they traveling through time or are they quantum leaping into somebody who's there?
0: You know, that's or a great point, because they, they did that in, um... I mean, they didn't always do that in the first film, come to think of it. I don't know, like...
1: Or maybe it's just a feature, it's just a feature of the locket, is that in addition to traveling through time, it shapeshifts you into somebody who doesn't look out of place wherever
0: you go. I mean, would you rather they land in each time period naked, and you have a forced scene where they try to find clothing... Uh,
1: maybe. I mean, you get a a little bit of comedy uh, anyway. But this is is one of the things they're very inconsistent on because he does find out that Sarah also traveled to this exact same period, but for whatever reason, she has amnesia and thinks she's Frankenstein's fiance.
0: Yeah, and I'm fairly familiar with uh, Frankenstein. Um, You know, it originally was a book by Mary uh, Shelley. uh, And the character that... um, Mark, uh, Zach Galligan's character has, has gone into is the one of, um, Henry Clavel, uh, Frankenstein's college buddy. So it is, um, I like that they use some real characters name. On the other hand, they have this made up character that's kind of like Igor in the castle. Uh, and, and you, and you have the things where the Frankenstein monster comes alive and the, the villagers trying to come in and everything. And, uh, As far as sequences go, this first one, I think, is sort of uh, less inspired. I don't know whether it's the way the Frankenstein monster looks, or it it just seems to putter around a bit. Um,
1: Well, I think part of it is that it introduces this time travel amnesia thing for Sarah that is immediately forgotten, and... And it it doesn't really get fun until the very end, uh, when uh, when all hell breaks loose and Frankenstein's monster escapes and and starts attacking everybody. Then it then it gets then it gets really exciting, although. This is when they sort of double down on how they're going to use the supernatural to protect Sarah in court because uh, Mark finds in the basement with the monster Frankenstein's notebook. He's like, oh, well, if we can reproduce these results in court and reanimate dead tissue, that proves that your father was attacked by a disembodied hand. And. I want to see that scene where somebody proposes to resurrect dead tissue in the middle of a courtroom, and the judge sort of soberly leans forward and says, I'm going to allow this.
0: Yeah, it is sort of a shame at the end of the movie, you don't get a a satisfying sort of trial sequence where they present all the evidence and they explain why it works. And I don't know, it's not a great payoff for this conceit.
1: Well, we'll jump to the end, but this—oh, this is also yeah. when it also there's another complication introduced because um, when uh, Mark and Sarah are ready to escape, Mark finds the time door in the basement. Oh, that's the other thing; it doesn't open a time door anywhere. It opens pre-existing time doorways. Um, he pushes her through the time doorway and then has to go back and get the notebook. So, but the time doorway is closed, and he has to find a different time doorway which is on the other side of the same basement. And it's just its just kind of a, a needless complication. And again, it's, it's, an, it's an inconsistency with, with the rules of time travel the movie operates under. Because the idea that they've got to find a specific doorway never doesn't come up again.
0: Yeah, this is, it comes across as a script that could have used a few more drafts. It, it's like they set up these rules, they don't stick with them and they basically do whatever they want to, to get from time period to time period, where if that's what you're going to do, fine, but then don't have everything hinge on trying to get evidence for this trial in the beginning. Like, the, the setup for this story is a bit needlessly um, complicated and convoluted, but I think once stuff gets going after this uh, Frankenstein segment, the movie improves a lot.
1: Well, what's re- a really interesting... Uh, is that so? They get separated because they go through different time doors, and this leads to two of the best sequences in the film. Because Sarah, her time door sent her to the distant future, and she is, for all intents and purposes, Elaine Ripley doing a deep space salvage mission where aliens <laughs> infect the ship. Uh, and Mark ends up in the movie The Haunting,
0: right? And that's and the one actually where black a group- and white. Yes, uh, and the way the haunting segment looks in black and white is fantastic, but so does the alien knockoff segment, and you get this um, almost sort of 2001 A Space Odyssey Kubrickian transition where he's in his scene going into the house, and it's black and white, and he doesn't know where Sarah is, and then the the camera goes up into the sky, into the moon, and then you, you see the, the spaceship, and it transitions that way, which I thought was clever. And,
1: and they even do a Thus thusbrek Zarathustra sting
0: Yep, there you go, even to to hammer the point home. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the way they have Sierra look in the alien segment with the wig, it clearly is trying to be like the way Ripley looks in Aliens, the second film, with the big perm. And um, the alien design, while not, you know, it doesn't look just like the one from the movie, but it's a cool design, I think, nonetheless. It looks kind of like a Zerg. Oh, yeah. Except a bigger one. Yeah, it looks like Zerg from the StarCraft uh, video games. That's true. Uh, the Hydralisk, really. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was kind and- of
1: kind of interesting, because when they show the alien at first, they really avoid showing it. Like, they cut around it, and they're, the lighting is really bad, and it's almost like they're trying to hide a bad suit. But then as this segment goes on, we eventually just get full-body pornographic shots of the alien costume, and it's not bad.
0: No, it's not bad. I, I like uh, visually. It has a lot of the um, the blue lighting that uh, and just the blue and steel look that James Cameron did for Aliens. Like it, it mimics that on a budget, pretty well. And I, I could have liked uh, more of the Alien sequence because we get a lot more with the haunting segment. But uh, well, well, this is we a see? ten cent
1: movie, but yes. all ten pennies are on the screen.
0: Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and I I read a quote about Star Trek Five. That reminds me a bit of uh, both of these Waxwork films. And it says we have champagne taste on a beer budget. (laughs) I can agree with that. Yeah, and there's no lack of ambition. They don't quite have the money to to properly pull it off. And uh, I still think Waxwork would be a terrific idea for a television show. Well, and
1: actually, speaking of Star Trek, in the haunting segment, we get Marina Sirtis.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: We get we get her and we get Bruce Campbell. So, so <laughs> I guess the the second two biggest names in this film are in this one sequence.
0: And Bruce Campbell uh, is the person leading the the group of people on the expedition in the haunted house. And and he he's just a delight. He's just so easygoing and sarcast sarcastic. And I think he knows exactly what he's doing here.
1: Oh, he absolutely does. And something I love is they really commit to reproducing the direction of the haunting. We see the same camera angles. We see the same dialogue beats, uh, which is fantastic. There's even a reproduction of one of the haunting's most chilling scenes when Mark is left in a room to sleep overnight. And there's just this pounding noise that keeps surrounding him from all angles that just eats away at his
0: mind. I want to stress this is an homage to the original haunting film from the 50s, I believe. It's black and white. Not the uh, remake done in the 90s with Liam Neeson. Yes, exactly. And uh, in in and speaking of a Star Trek connection, the original haunting film was directed by Robert Wise, who directed Star Trek The Motion Picture.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So there you go. But no, I think the, the way this black and white cinematography... Uh, isn't here? It's it's good. I think this is a much more effective use of black and white and camera angles than we had in the first waxwork film, where it was the um, night of the living dead sequence. Yeah,
1: and something I think also works in the uh, the haunting segment of this film is that. It does have a little bit of color, but it's always to indicate the supernatural. Because when we get that pan to the sky, the sky is in color, even though the rest of the world isn't. Uh, but there's also a tribute to the shining in this sequence, where a door opens and all this blood comes out, and the blood is technicolor red. Uh, and then there's a ghostly image of a girl that Mark keeps seeing. The ghost is always in color, even though nothing else is. And again, dead people being needlessly cryptic because she's like, under the diamond, look under the diamond. And, oh God, but this, the haunting segment, the way it ends, it has some of the best slapstick because, um, Mark, because Marina Certis has been, has been hanged and everyone presumes she's dead. Mark goes into the basement and Bruce Campbell is tied to this, uh, is tied to this, uh, was it a St. Peter's cross? I believe that's right, or Saint Anthony's cross. But anyway, he's tied to the cross, and his ch- his chest has been flayed open, and he has all these exposed <laughs> bones and organs, and a, and a hawk is chewing at it, just like uh, just like uh, Prometheus, which uh, Mark has to chase off. And everything Mark does to help Bruce Campbell only screws it up more.
0: Yeah, he thinks he's tossing water on it instead. He tosses vinegar on it, and Bruce and, yeah. Campbell does these delightful faces.
1: And then he like he he tosses. He ends up like tossing uh, salts on the wound. <laughs> like literal a bag of literally a bag of salt gets tossed on the wound.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, no, no, no. It doesn't hurt too much anymore. It's it's starting to go numb. You're you're okay. Uh, and then when he when he goes to untie the he goes to untie this uh, rope. Turns out that rope is what's holding up the Saint Peter's cross, which falls forward, slamming Bruce into the ground. But this is when the whole diamond things come back, is when they pull Bruce up. His his uh, four sided wound leaves a diamond shaped impression of blood on the floor. Uh, and they discover, oh, the girl who's haunting the place, she has to escape the spirit of her father, and this happens real fast. Uh, she's buried under this diamond on the floor, so all we have to do is perform a funerary rite over her corpse, and we're done. So they pry it open, and her bones are there, and Mark is trying to read from a, uh, read from a Catholic Bible, uh, but he's reading it upside down, because <laughs> he thinks it's in Latin, but it's in English.
0: Yeah, that, that was a cute joke, and... uh Oh, I and mean, then Marina yeah,
1: Sirtis shows up mind-controlled by the evil goats, and there's a fight, and every time Mark throws something at Marina Sirtis, she ducks, and it hits Bruce Campbell in the head.
0: As you mentioned, there's just so many nice moments of physical comedy here, and visually it looks great. I mean, I would have been happy almost if the whole film would have been just more of this segment. You, you could have
1: gotten a lot of mileage on it. I personally think that it's just enough of this segment. I only wish some of the other homages were given this level of care, detail, and time to breathe. Because they, they do everything with their haunting tribute you could possibly do. Um, right down to Marina Sirtis sort of slyly saying, well, if you're scared, you could sleep in my room. You uh, know, like right, right yeah, yeah. Right out of the original film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah but anyway, he he performs the funerary rite uh the girl is the free the evil spirit loses its power uh, and then uh, mark uh, goes through another time door to, to leave we cut back to sarah in her alien segment and it's pretty cool like people are dying there's lots of gore uh I, and I gotta say, I gotta applaud some of the outright slapstick gore in this film. I think my favorite kill is when Frankenstein's monster freeze, fra- squeezes Frankenstein's head, and not only does it pop all the teeth out of his mouth, but it pops the eyes out of his head. We get some similar stuff with the alien sequence. There's this great bit where they're all in spacesuits, and the alien pulls out someone's air hose, and the guy e- explosively decompresses in his own spacesuit, and we see it fill with blood, and blood start. Spraying out of every seam, uh, but they decide to just go ahead and call it off as a loss. So they all get into their uh, uh, Sarah and the uh, black guy. They just crawl into their space shuttle to to leave. Uh, and there's there's even a good decompression scene where they blast one of the aliens out of a hole in the hull. But. Uh, she goes, you know, they go, they go to take off, and she makes this comment about how, you know, well, clearly, the, you know, the aliens got on board with infected food. It's lucky we didn't eat that soup. And he's like, not eat the soup. And then a chestburster comes out of his mouth. <laughs> and it's a great scene. Like, the, the chestburster attacks her. uh but then, like, an axe just kills the chestburster, and then we see that it's Mark. Mark's finally caught up with her, and he's apparently had a whole lifetime's worth of adventures because he lost Frankenstein's journal, but he has with them a coffin used in voodoo rituals to create zombies that he makes this joke about how he's had to carry it around with them for quite some time. <laughs> and it's covered in spears.
0: Yeah, maybe they were planning to do a Waxwork 3 that would show that interqual... I, I seriously doubt doing. it.
1: Although that would be pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. But uh, then another alien comes in. There's a bit more of a fight. Uh, the spaceship explodes. Uh, but apparently they came through a time door. But now they've landed. Uh, now they've landed on medieval world.
0: Yeah, in this medieval segment, quite a bit of the film um, takes place here, and I think it's a little too much for my liking. You it, get... it
1: it goes on a bit too long, and it's not. A reference to anything in particular. It's just generically medieval.
0: Yeah, it reminded me a bit of like the the Prince Valiant or something like that. I've heard some I read some reviews comparing it to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and it's like, not really. I mean, just because it has knights in it doesn't make it Monty Python or you could say it's like Excalibur, maybe, but
1: Well what's funny is that well, one, they should have they should have made it more like Excalibur or maybe like Highlander. But you you mentioned it's, that it's about the references to Monty Python. It doesn't even work like that because there's already Python references in this movie, but none of them are in this segment. I mean, keep in mind when when uh, he tries to when Mark tries to help Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell's like, no, 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 it's only a flesh wound,
0: right? I think you know. The re- I, I read a few reviews that mentioned that, and I just think it's just the reviewers might have been ill informed or making just an assumption. That maybe if the only medieval movie you've seen was Holy Grail, then you think anything with a medieval would uh, be a call out to Monty Python. Um, and, but and,
1: and they attempt to raise the stakes because when they when they yes. fell through the time door during the explosion, Mark lost the lost the locket. So they so as far as they know, they have no way to escape medieval times. Uh, but he does get a magic sword from David Carradine.
0: He does, and it's it's a small scene, but it's nice. You know, David Carradine is the dying hero against a tree that bequeaths his sword uh, to Zach Galligan and it's um, it's a good and all, scene.
1: And all he has to do is get revenge on Scarabus, who is the evil overlord of this particular area.
0: Yeah, that is strange, isn't it? They reveal kind of the villain of the movie, like over halfway through it.
1: Well, even then, he's only the villain because he's what stands in their way right now. He has nothing to do with anything else in the movie.
0: Scarabus is played by Alexander Gudinoff who was the uh, the long-haired terrorist in the original Die Hard movie. Mm, yeah. And he's on the back of the he's on the front of the box for the movie which is confusing Um, because looking at it it doesn't even look like Waxwork had such a playful poster with a, a short butler opening the door and all these monsters inside but this one it's just the poster is a boring picture of uh, Alexander Gudinoff with um. A hand superimposed on top of it
1: well it looks just like a bad it's like a bad direct-to-video 90s cover
0: yeah but no, it, it, not, looking at that cover you would not think oh this is a movie that um has like frankenstein and alien and, and horror movie scenes and zombies and all these things but a lot
1: of stuff happens in this segment and a lot of it really feels like filler uh, and again, lots of opportunities for nudity that are that are never taken. Um, but Sarah is also in this world, and uh, Scarabus wants to marry her for whatever reason. Uh, Scarabus has a uh, has an, an he has it has an evil gay sidekick who is played with all the subtlety of Doctor Frankenfurter.
0: Yeah, it, um, it's a bit over the top, and yet I think if we didn't have that sidekick, it would just make the segment all the more bland.
1: I kinda I, I just I kinda wish they just went all out. You I mean you might as well just make uh, the yeah. character Dr. Frankenfurter to get at least that much more of a, a reference uh, in
0: this movie. You probably could. And, and back then you probably could have called it Frankenfurter and not gotten in trouble. Um <laughs>
1: But yeah, and it, lots some some stuff happens. Mark tries to lead a rebellion. He fails. He gets locked in a dungeon, and this is when a lot of crazy stuff happens.
0: Th- th- ex- the way they deliver this exposition is so stupid and forced. Where Mark is in the prison, and this raven comes in. And it has the voice of Sir Wilfred. Yeah, it turns um, out it
1: is Sir Wilfred. After yes. he died, he got turned into a raven, which which is the one thing I do like is in his video, you know, he says, you know, I, I, I always wanted to trade in this chair for a pair of wings. And you think he's talking about being an angel, but no, he gets his wings, but they're raven wings. But yeah, it's just so lazy. He says this is the last time he can help him uh, and just gives Mark another time locket. Yeah, so and he
0: mentions, you know, their tension's gone. With the locket, they've been going into, they're on this, like, alternate dimension that works as kind of a God's Nintendo game, which is such a ridiculous quote. Um, I'll have to try and dig it up and put it at the front of the show.
1: Yeah, it's, like, but, like called uh, Cartagoras, and it's, yeah. like, it's an alternate dimension where the battle between good and evil happens in perpetuity, uh, but that whenever evil wins, there's, like, natural disasters on Earth. Never say what happens when good wins here. Um, oh, and... There's only one door, and you can only pass through it twice.
0: Like, why introduce this stuff so late in the film, and then it just doesn't... At the end, it all really doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, it does a really poor job of trying to reintroduce the tension that disappeared when Mark just gets another uh, another time locket. Um, but, you know, uh, Scarabus... Uh, th- there's this neat scene that's doesn't exactly go anywhere where Scarabus like turns a woman into a panther, but he's going to use the same he's going to use the same magic to take the place of King Arthur, uh, who has been invited to the castle and who's been drugged to make him sick. Uh, and it all gets rather complicated. Uh, he uh, Mark leads another rebellion uh, with uh, all of Arthur's knights. The one thing I like about this whole rebellion scene. Uh, is Scarabus does successfully turn into King Arthur, but King Arthur's right-hand man knows he's not really King Arthur because he doesn't he doesn't have the royal ring and doesn't know what the royal ring is. But there's this bit where when they... when he So they put the imposter under guard, but when they come back, the imposter's not there. Scarabus is gone. And he goes, well, what, what happened to him? Well, he is the king. He ordered us to let him go. I mean, that was the king, right? He looked like the king.
0: It's, yeah, that's kind of amusing. I think what, I think what really finally makes the segment pick up for me is uh, in the Panther sequence. It, it's sort of cool, but you're right, doesn't end up too much. But uh, towards the end, where they you get the final battle between Mark and uh, Scarabus, and they have like kind of like a, a sword fight, and they keep on going between different dimensions really quick. I mean, I, I find that was very that was a, a neat way to do. Uh, a final confrontation because otherwise had they just done a fight scene, just in medieval world, it would have been a bit flat.
1: It was really fun. It was really inventive, but it doesn't go far enough for me because Scarabus gets the, steals the time locket and gets it entangled on his sword, which is why the time doors keep opening. And, and the thing is they keep, they keep jumping into different worlds. And I really felt like whenever they transferred into another, into another world that, the way they were fighting should have changed to fit that world, oh, but yeah. they're always That's sword true. fighting. It's always like, sword fighting. They they never switch to blunderbusses or guns. They never go. They. I'm shocked they didn't end up in Star Wars and start fighting with lightsabers. I was waiting for that moment.
0: Right. Uh, but, instead, some of the more memorable sequences to me one is is Nosferatu, where everything is sped up, just like in the old silent film, and on the bed watching are two women, one of which is Drew Barrymore.
1: Yes, yeah. There's two. There's two victims of Nosferatu in in the bed who are in the middle of all this. Yeah, and and it is Drew Barrymore. And I found out uh, this goes into the trivia. She was apparently friends with the writer director uh, Hickox and was just visiting yep. the set. And they're like, "Hey, do you want to be in this movie?" Yeah, sure. This sounds like fun. So they just <laughs> threw her in bed next to the woman who was already the vampire's victim. Uh, and and the thing is, she she has. It's it's really weird because it's Drew it's Drew Barrymore. After her child acting ended, but before she really started acting as an adult. So, you could be forgiven if you don't recognize that it's her. There's really only one frame where it's undeniably Drew Barrymore.
0: Yeah, it's before she did Poison Ivy. Um,
1: yeah. so. Oh, and the characters talk in dialogue boxes, which is pretty fun. There's a there's kind of a tossed-off Jack the Ripper thing. At one point, they travel into a Godzilla movie, which was actually rather fun, and I loved their cut-rate Godzilla <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, I really like the Dawn of the Dead segment where they go into the mall. I mean, from the colors and and how they have the people firing the guns and how the zombies move, I mean, that's, again, just sort of like in the first film, you yeah, had the homage to Night of the Living Dead. This is an homage to Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and it's, it's a much really better well, homage. Yeah, this time around, it's a much better homage. It's just really well done. It just Even the shot composition. Uh, Anthony Hickox is nothing but a director who um, pays attention to what he is trying to ape in sequence to sequence
1: and there's then there's two things that, that are in the dawn of the dead sequence uh, one is that there's a shot of a zombie's head exploding that is great but um, you can totally see the uh, co2 pipe going into the zombie's head that makes the pressure that makes the it makes it explode and it's 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 one of those things where like it's so visible I have to wonder did they leave that in on purp? Did did they shoot it that way on purpose?
0: I don't know. Or it could have been a thing where it, it, it they were limited on time and they just had one shot to get it. <laughs> so whatever they they had uh that's well, I mean, had which to deal which with. could be. Yeah, certainly. But,
1: um But also Mark cuts the hand off a zombie and keeps it with him to be their evidence for later.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But finally, they fight their way back to the medieval times. And this is something that drove me crazy after Patrick McNee explains that, you know, there's only, you can only cross the threshold of this world twice. But then they keep crossing these thresholds, which, like, well, how are they going to get back if they keep traveling through time? But then it turns out that they were only traveling through time within this dimension, which is also so needlessly complicated.
0: Yeah, and that it goes back into medieval time, like you said. Like if they'd gone into Star Wars, they could have done something really spectacular for the end of this fight, and instead they don't.
1: But uh, yeah, and so he Mark decides to stay behind and become one of God's own personal time warriors in this dimension. Uh, but opens the gateway to uh, send Sarah back with the zombie hand so that she can uh, she can clear her name, and and this is a, it's another one of those those complicated things where Patrick nee, or Sir Wilfred is needlessly cryptic where it's like, how do you how do you get out? Oh, think about it for a minute and then guess, which is another Alice in Wonderland reference, which just means they have to be standing near a mirror and that's where the way out is.
0: Right. But, and I, uh, and throughout the film, there's some dialogue that references Alice in Wonderland as, as well. Um just thrown throughout to, to underline that point. and But the but ending she... it just really frustrated me. It just felt like the end of Labyrinth. Well, well where it the gets characters wrapped up. In a, where inner characters are in the room, jumping up and down in the bed, celebrating, uh, apropos of nothing. It felt too easy.
1: Yeah, because we, we kind of... So Sarah, you know, goes to the gateway, finds herself back in uh, Sir Wilfred's secret vault. She's got the hand... And then we cut to really the last good shot of the movie where the hand is in a little turtle terrarium (laughs) in the courtroom. And the entire court's like, well, I guess the supernatural exists, so I guess an evil hand did kill your dad. Not guilty! And she's released really quickly. She's besieged by reporters. And uh, in the middle of all this, a telegram guy shows up from the world's oldest delivery service. To give, her a, to give her a package, and in the package is a time locket with the note that says, Join me. So she's like, Oh, well, I guess I'll go. So she jumps into a taxi cab that's waiting for her, and as the cab drives away, there's this flash of blue light from within, so presumably she found a doorway and went to Cartagris, which, that's almost too, ple- I, I am that is almost too pleasant an ending. I, I feel like, if you're if you're gonna have her use the locket herself to go through a time door to get back to Carthagoras, the last shot of the movie should probably be her arriving in a different world and realizing it's gonna be harder to reunite with Mark than she thought.
0: What if instead for the ending she goes back to the court scene and you think everything is okay, but it turns out she is in a different dimension um where the court scene like something like the jury turns around and the jury's all monsters or i don't know like some you could have some twist like that
1: yeah i feel like it really needs a sting instead they go for schmaltz, and it doesn't exactly work
0: oh and the car drives away and yeah i the ending is sort of a letdown but overall i um i don't know i I think there's enough to like in this film between the alien segment especially the haunting part and uh I, I love how crazy well, it gets towards the end in that fight scene where they go from dimension to dimension. Although, albeit, really it's a bit quick. Uh, I think that's just enough for me to barely give this a sequel, yes.
1: Well, you, I'm going to give this a sequel, yes. And that is in large part because, for me, technically the movie did end on a high note because after that final shot, we go to the credits and what's playing under the credits? An expository rap.
0: Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty good. It's a music video. Um and they're rapping about the whole plot as they tended to do with uh, movies around this time, like the uh Ninja Turtles live action film had a expository <laughs> rap. Um, it had a ninja rap. Uh that was the second one, yeah. The first one had a rap from I think Partners in Crime or something, where they mistakenly say Raphael is the leader of the group. Yeah, you know, and funny thing is like I f when when this first started I thought,
1: Oh, is this Partners in Crime?
0: Yeah, I you know it it does sound like it. Um and uh it's the same I, style
1: I, of expository rap.
0: Uh, and that is not just a rap, but that is a full-blown video. Um, filmed <laughs> on the set, and we get yeah. to see all the actors dancing <laughs> and
1: having a great time filming their parts of the music video.
0: It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an inspired bit of lunacy. It's not what I expected, but I was very glad to see it.
1: The only thing missing is like the alien costume guy dancing with some people. <laughs>
0: That would have been good, yeah. Oh well, but yeah, um,
1: but it, it it recaps the plot of the movie. Like I love it. I love expository raps, particularly particularly in horror movies. Like this ranks up there with the maniac cop rap.
0: Well, now we have to do maniac cop if it has a rap. I think that's oh yes, part it of does. our new criteria. <laughs> uh, you should actually use the Waxwork Two rap the next time you do one of your LARPs.
1: I should find a way to work it in. <laughs> like, mm-hmm.
0: I don't here's know what how. you need
1: to know, and then I'll just start karaoke-ing along to it.
0: Yes, actually, Waxwork would be a good LARP idea, wouldn't it? Well, you know, it's it's funny you
1: say that, but there, there's been a long gestating uh, B horror movie LARP that we've wanted to do for a while called uh, called the Horror of Murder Beach. And one of the reasons why we haven't done it is we keep adding to it because we keep finding new types of cheesy horror movies to work into the premise and waxwork would fit in there flawlessly. But yeah, I'm giving this a sequel, yes. I okay, I would still yeah. like to see more of this story, more of this conceit. Especially like if you did it now, a horror has gone some interesting directions. So you could go into like a scream-type Realm you could yeah, go into saw. a saw type torture yeah. porn realm, uh, and, and there's still other classic forms of horror like 70s exploitation horror would be great. Uh, actually, going into Psycho would be really, really fun. You
0: yeah, know, it, it's just such a, a ripe idea. Um, I, I do recall reading an interview with some filmmaker a few years ago got Anthony Hickox's blessing for his idea on remaking the original, and that never got off the ground. Um, and so I'm surprised we have not seen another one in some form, uh, whether it be remake or not, uh, which brings us to pitch sequel. Ah, uh, yes. So, I had something in mind, I think, uh, so I'm inspired by the phrase, God's Nintendo game, which is such <laughs> a, I cannot get over how, how both dumb and brilliant of a phrase that is, <laughs> and I, I think you would have, um... You you would take things kind of on a a cosmic level and have God... uh, It would open up with God is uh, fishing in his closet, trying to find the perfect... He has a literal video game console that is hooked up to this dimension, and he picks out different games to put in there. And that would be kind of the framing story, and it would not feature... um, Actually, no, it would feature... Uh, not Mark Loftmore, because let's say Zach Gallagher wanted too much money, but instead it would have just Sarah Brightman going on adventures, and she would be completely, uh, you would have these weird comical interludes with God switching the video game (laughs) when he would get bored with it, or he would provide kind of commentary on top of what's happening. Um, So it would be kind of surreal, kind of less plot, I think more focusing on on going to different segments uh, faster, and... At the end, um, Sarah goes and gets to meet God, and he shows off his closet of video games and says, so which one do you want to play next? And then it cuts to credits.
1: God played by Harry Knowles in a surprising cameo? Uh,
0: please not Harry Knowles. Okay. <laughs> um, God played by Harry Shearer with a lot of prosthetics. <laughs> D- doing some appropriate voice. War Doctor, would you like to play some of my video games? Yeah, the um, God, I keep on forgetting that Harry Shearer. I think might have been the only cast member that was on SNL twice and for two different years <laughs> under two different producers. Remember, because he was on the fifth season, which is the last one that Lorne Michaels did his first go around, and then he did it on the one season where it had a producer um that had Billy Crystal, and it was kind of an all-star Martin oh, Short,
1: the the Gene Domanian years,
0: yeah, um. I think so. Or was it between Gene Domanian and Lauren Michaels? It was like this weird uh, kind of area where they, they spent a lot of money to get like Martin Short and Billy Crystal and Harry Shearer and all these top-line talents and they didn't have a guest for the first three episodes. And it was just going to be more like SCTV and just be um, <laughs> more less guest-focused, more just focused on, on big-budget segments and, and so forth.
1: That was a weird era. <laughs>
0: Uh, It was very weird, in fact, when I think the first guest they had, which might have been Al Sharpton or something, uh, Harry Shearer got so fed up that they didn't do what they were promising to do, that he left after five episodes of that second time around he was on the show. So that's needless SNL trivia included for no apparent reason. Uh, so, what's your pitch of sequel for Waxwork?
1: So my pitch of sequel, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go full on like Waxwork, the next generation. So, since Mark and Sarah are no longer in their home time period, even though Mark inherited the whole of uh, Sir Wilfred's estate, well, that just means Wilfred's estate is kind of boarded up, waiting for waiting for them to come back. So, a few years later, quite possibly in the modern day. Uh, some some horny teens looking to smoke pot and have premarital sex break into the mansion, uh, and they find the secret chamber because, as far as we know, Sarah left the door open when she left, uh, and they start playing around with all the stuff in there, but unleash some uh, unleash some supernatural energy that they can barely control. And the whole party ends up traveling into different worlds, getting, getting killed off one by one. Uh, and they're going to do just what I said. They're going to go into a Saw torture porn type world. They're going to go into the original Psycho. Uh, they're going to go into a low budget Roger Corman movie where part of the joke, part of the fun will be how, how sort of purposefully bad a lot of the effects are, uh, We'll also get cameos from some of the filmmakers who worked in those kinds of movies. Uh, so Joe Dante will be there. If Dick Miller was alive, he, I would work him in somehow. But it finally gets down to just two people, uh, another boy and a girl, and they're going to end up meeting uh, Mark and Sarah. And Mark and Sarah are like, well, we've been at this for quite some time. Now it's time for us to retire. We're going to pass the torch on to you. So they become the new time warriors who stay in the stay in the other dimension to fight the battle between good and evil. Uh, Mark and Sarah leave. They return to Wilfred's manor. They're now both old people. And uh, But they take over the manor, they refurbish it, and they turn it into sort of a Professor X, Xavier Institute-type training ground where they seek out young people with talent and train them to be, to be new people to go around destroying waxworks.
0: And what are some of the scenarios they find themselves in? Okay, well, we've talked about Saw,
1: we've talked about Psycho, we've talked about low-budget uh, Roger Corman. Uh, I, would also put, ooh, I would also put them in Jaws.
0: Oh, yeah, I would put sure. I would
1: put them on a boat being besieged by a shark.
0: And what would yours uh, be
1: called? Uh, wax. Well, you know what? The next generation is a really lame title, so I'm gonna do uh, I'm gonna do uh, Waxwork Lost and Found.
0: And mine would be called Waxwork Three God's Closet. <laughs> Oh,
1: as me which they are still getting their money's worth out of that drippy waxwork logo because it's reused at both the beginning and the end of this film, and they just add a little thing with swords on the bottom to make Lost in Time.
0: <laughs> yep, it's a good logo.
1: No, no, I mean, you 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 pay for that. You're going to use it. I like I like their commitment.
0: So, uh, Thrasher, I have a question for you.
1: Is uh, the question about where you can get a nice brisket?
0: Not this time, it's what you're watching.
1: All right, well, I've, I, I have been on a bit of a movie-watching binge, so there's there's two things that I watched. One, I watched the new uh, Murder on the Orient Express.
0: Oh, I, I've also seen that, yeah, with Kenneth Branagh. Yeah,
1: and, and I, I was... I, I, it's a movie that I was skeptical of, but from the moment it started, I was immediately enchanted. Like, I I really came out of that loving that movie. Now, I have not read the original story it's based on, so I don't know if they changed the guilty party. Um, And I do feel like the solution to the crime is just convoluted enough that it strains credulity. But... The journey to get to that end is so good, and there's so many great performances and delightful twists and turns and period details. Uh, I love that whole bit about enjoying a good rosé. That was just such a great uh, riposte in the character's dialogue. I That was a good movie.
0: Well, and I like at the beginning, they have a, a fun sort of short sequence where... Um... Oh, a mini
1: mystery to establish Hercule Poirot's bona fides. I love that.
0: Yeah, and, and he goes on a bit, like, how particular he is about his eggs, uh, which I found charming. Well, the other thing I
1: like is that it's not just him being obsessive-compulsive. His quirks do always turn out to serve a purpose. Like, you do find out when he solves that mystery. The whole reason he's being particular about his eggs is to waste time so he has more time to think about the case.
0: Right, and uh, the facial hair on Kenneth as Hercule Poirot is quite funny. It, it's really overdone, but I think it, it works. Um, and and you get a good collection of actors here. Doing, and,
1: uh, and you get to see Johnny Depp stabbed if that's your thing, you know? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. with the uh, news stories going on nowadays might be more satisfying than people were intending.
1: Um, and you know, a, thir- a 1930s yeah. tough guy is like the part Josh Gad was born to play.
0: <laughs> no, he's good. And Josh Gad, um, he, when he was promoting this film, on the Graham Norton show, um, which is one of my favorite talk shows lately, he, oh, he's great! Yeah, and and uh, Josh Gad talked about how you have to have scenes where, in these mysteries, where people look suspicious, and for Josh Gad's motivation, he always like says you have to make like a who farted look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> but then he made the mistake of mentioning this to other actors, and then they couldn't get through these scenes without laughing on set.
1: Uh, I'd love to see those outtakes.
0: Yeah, it's um, it, and, there, and this movie had a really, uh, one it had one really good poster that showed the Orient Express, the train, but then the um, the smoke coming out of the front of the train was like blood red, and it was a really mm. neat imagery there. And they were doing a sequel to this. Uh, I don't know if Kenneth Branagh is directing it, but he's starring in it, and it's um. Oh, the, the mystery uh, on the Nile! Mystery on the Nile, which they hint at at the end of this film as a teaser.
1: Yeah, al- almost a bit too much.
0: Shall we go like, to the Nile? Oh, I Is say, there a mystery there? Oh.
1: Yes, I say there's a mystery on the Nile. <laughs> we better get that chap Poirot.
0: I have a two-picture deal. Let's go. Well, I <laughs> yeah, I uh, I found that one pretty amusing. Uh, I <laughs> just uh, came back from the theater yesterday, and I saw Captain Marvel.
1: Oh, it's, well, again, so did I, so...
0: Oh, okay, uh, so I don't want to really spoil it, because the movie just came out, and I'm, I have no familiarity with this character at all. I found it at the beginning really convoluted and confusing, and it gets better as it goes on, and the de-aging effects for Samuel L. Jackson, or... Pretty amazing. Well,
1: across the board the de aging effects are, are really good, although yeah, they also if you, do it
0: with Clark Greg. Yeah. Although
1: if you told me that they just had Samuel L. Jackson put on an extra twenty pounds and give and get a new haircut and that was it, I would believe you. That right. man does um, not
0: age. No, and he's, he's I think he's seventy or something. He's or, in his seventies. It's crazy. Like yeah, man, they need to get Why uh, Samuel L. Jackson has not been in an Expendables movie, I don't know. But they could... Too classy for the maybe. uh, Probably. um, They could throw him in there. Um, But so, uh, yeah, Captain Marvel, I I thought it was okay. I wasn't blown away with it. If we're talking about female-led superhero movies, I liked Wonder Woman a lot more. Uh, But this one was... um, I think the the time period in the 90s you had some, some comedy with that that kind of worked uh, but I also think a lot of the jokes just, just didn't quite work with me for some reason but I did like some of the plot twists uh, in there I, I can agree with that. I
1: mean, overall, I enjoyed it too. I like. I think the thing that helped with using the '90s as a setting is they never did like, "Whoa, can you believe we're in the '90s?" Like, they 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 didn't treat the '90s the way other films treat the '80s. They just treat the '90s as a very matter of fact decade that happened.
0: Yeah, and uh, also, I mean, on the soundtrack, there's uh, '90s music. Good um, '90s music. Yeah, good good '90s music inspired choices. Uh, like one of the, the most
1: interesting Stan Lee cameos, and one that raises a lot
0: of questions. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I wish I could go into that, but I'm not going to. But yeah, it's uh, a. <laughs> yeah, someone related to what they're referencing in the Stan Lee cameo uh, posted a picture of himself in tears at hmm. being surprised at that moment. Um, well, so.
1: <laughs> if, if I can uh, get a, a bit more in depth about the movie without giving anything away, yes. uh, is that I found I felt like the, I like the comic cosmic stuff, but that's because I love uh, Marvel Kirby esque cosmic stuff. But the, I think the movie was at its best when Captain Marvel and Nick Fury were working together as buddy cops when they were doing, like, lethal weapon-type stuff. I thought that was brilliant. That was the height of the movie for me. Um, I found this actual superhero stuff a lot less interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the superhero stuff comes, I I think, in a way, the audience gets kind of bored of it because, Jesus Christ, we've done, like, what, 20 Marvel films (laughs) in 11 years it's almost as much James Bond movies as has been made in forty years. Like it's, the, the, I, I realize these things make money, but it's kind of ridiculous. Like you get, how many more scenes of people flying and shooting lasers and explosions do we need to see? Well,
1: I know I. This is my hope, and I know my hope is going to be dashed. But when after Endgame comes out, I hope they give us some time to get hungry again. Like I would love, I would love just a full year. With no Marvel Universe movies just just so I can get real hungry for for whatever comes after that that gap
0: yeah, they have not announced their phase four of uh, slate of films well, not um,
1: in detail you know they, right. they, there is a there is a Doctor. Strange in the works uh, hypothetically, Guardians three is still going to happen, although it's been put on kind of an indefinite hold um, so we do have some idea of what's coming.
0: Yeah, uh, there's gonna and we got to be, that other Spider-Man that's gonna come out. They're uh, for Spider-Man two and three. That second one, Home or Far from Home, comes out uh, this year. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see what they announce. I'd be kind of curious. I agree. I think a break would be good. Um, I did really like the performance of uh, Ben Mendelsohn in here.
1: Oh, as the Scroll? Yes, as the Scroll. He's oh he's yeah, he was quite good. No, yeah. no one can drink a uh, an orange Julius like him.
0: Yep, just uh, he has a lot of stuff to work with, looks like he's having fun, and Brie Larson as Captain Marvel is good, it's just you're in a situation where a character has a lot of amnesia, and so um, that makes it kind of hard to connect with them.
1: Oh, so I've got, do we have time to talk about a third film? Uh, yes. So I, I uh, saw something, it's a movie I've been meaning to watch a uh for again for ages because this is another thing that I saw back in the '90s on cable. Um, it's Jim Wynorski's directorial debut, the 1984 film *The Lost Empire*. Have you ever seen this?
0: No, I've never heard of it.
1: This, this, you okay? You need to see it. It's available on some streaming services now. It, it is, it is a, it is a gloriously campy movie. Um, stars uh, Melina Vince as. Los Angeles police detective Angel Wolf who, to investigate a, a, a cult, teams up with a Native American martial artist uh, named White Star who's played by uh, uh, Raven de la Croix, who you might remember from a lot of Russ Meyer movies uh, and also teams up with an ex-con uh, named Heather McClure, played by Angela Ames and they team, they team up to infiltrate a martial arts cult Founded by the evil Dr. Sindhu, who is also the immortal serial killer Lee Chuck, who is played by Angus Scrim. Ah, who, from a... who, who lives on a super science island and is building a death ray powered by ancient Lemurian energy crystals.
0: <laughs> wow, yeah, I'm looking at this. Uh... Poster for it, and what's funny is the Wikipedia poster has it on a double bill with the party animal.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was released? It was released as a double bill back when movies did that. But like this is this is just like the perfect kind of this is the perfect B movie. It's loaded to tributes to other great movies like uh oh gosh like Enter the Dragon. Uh, the the special effects are like low budget. It's one of those things where. And I wish more movies did this, where they don't have the money or the skill to do a really good special effect or the set, but they say, fuck it, we're going to do it anyway, and we'll just work with what we have. And it's also very, very quotable. I mean, what other movie are you going to have the line, I hate robot spiders?
0: Uh, Yeah, especially delivered like that. Sounds um, pretty amazing.
1: It was also just great to see Angus Scrim playing a villain who has a lot of dialogue. Like, he really gets to act in this movie. Oh, and also, uh, Angelique Pettyjohn plays a prison guard in the early prison scene who a lot of people might remember as one of the gladiators from the Star Trek episode The Gamesters of Triskelion.
0: Okay, well, very good. I'll have to... check that one out.
1: Um, yeah, definitely check out The Lost Empire by Jim Wynorski. And if, oh, and if you're interested, uh, there's a really neat, and I believe I talked about this on the old sequel cast, there's a really neat documentary about Jim Wynorski called Papatopoulos, which I think might still be on Netflix. That is also worth checking out.
0: And I guess for another thing I've seen real quick, as we close out, um, I, I've been watching on YouTube uh, on the channel First We Feast, they have something called The Burger Show, um, mm. Hosted by a chef, um, made famous for he had a, a food cart that blew up in L.A. called um, Egg Slut, but he he talks to these hamburger experts, and um, from the point of view of a chef and as a hamburger fan, and I like hamburgers, and uh, it, it's quite interesting. Especially he he um, talks to one fella who has a a replica of a machine. That's only used in one burger place in the Midwest, in which you have hmm. these pans, that are that it's uh, burgers in which the meat and cheese are steamed in separate pans, and then combined on a bun.
1: So they are they are steamed hams.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, they're the original steamed ham. I didn't think about that, but yeah, it's a, it it's a very strange device, but it's a it's a fun show, and he talks to some different people uh one of them he talks to adam richman who's the guy from man vs. food and they go to new york and have i think one of the world's most expensive hamburgers at 350 dollars a pop um because it has gold leaf on the bun has truffle butter truffle oil uh, all, all these ridiculous things so it's a fun show about hamburgers i would um i would recommend it cool the burger show and uh, we should do the scene from waxwork 2.
1: Yeah. And this scene uh, this just has one of my favorite cheesy lines in it. So like I think that that's why that's why we're going going for it.
0: Okay, and who's going to do what character?
1: Um I would I would love to do uh Scarabus.
0: Okay, go for it. And I guess I'll do the other two. So oh, okay. this is what? Okay, cool. Uh, so this is the scene Scarabus is the main bad guy. And uh, the other characters are, are Sarah and Mark, the hero and heroine of the piece.
1: And this is right before the climactic sword fight through time?
0: <laughs> yep.
1: All right, so we're getting care character guy. Before I kill you, tell me, from what village does such reckless impetuosity originate? America, of course. America? Is that north or south of London? It's the future. Kind of west. Well let's us pray no more of your friends venture east
0: you ain't heard nothing yet and,
1: and in the movie that whole like america line it's 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 spoken with all the gusto of a post nine eleven film
0: i uh, when I saw the film I laughed at the scene is it north or south of London and she goes kind of west I think that's pretty funny <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, man. But yeah, I I, I enjoyed this movie. And hey, you know what you might enjoy? Follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor.
0: Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. The next series of films we're going to talk about is something we've been meaning to do for a long time.
1: Oh, boy. Lay it on us.
0: It is the Terminator, uh, as of now, quintet of films, although the sixth one comes out later this year. Dun, dun, Um, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And uh, the, the Terminator, it's always been one of my favorite series, and honestly, the reason why we haven't covered it until now is because I kept on thinking, well, they keep on doing sequels, and uh, they're trying to start a new trilogy or something, uh, which is true, but however, they've failed uh, financially in all three attempts. They didn't quite make enough money to justify, and so it'll, especially when we get to Terminator 3, 4, and 5. Um, Wait, why,
1: why, why make a trilogy when you could just make one good movie?
0: Not just that, but it's like the, the problem. And you see this with a lot of movies lately. A, a, a memorable example is the recent King Arthur movie by Guy Ritchie. Was supposed to kick off a seven-film series. Oh, and, and, that, and that you get stuck with the first movie. That's a lot of exposition that that never pays off because you never do a sequel because <laughs> that first one isn't successful enough. So it's like you get basal exposition in the movie, and then where nothing much happens, and then it's like, oh, nope, you don't get to find out what happens to these characters
1: it's it shouldn't be hard to just do one decent movie that deserves a sequel rather than try to force a whole franchise
0: yeah and with the the interesting thing is with the 6th terminator film i think it's called it's not called dark place what is it like dark future i don't know dark net or whatever it, it, it's a pretty lame name but it james cameron is having some involvement with the story uh and is, is an executive producer which he hasn't done for terminator 3 4 and 5 And, um, it, it brings to mind when Terminator Genesis, the fifth film came out, James Cameron was, was quoted all over the trailers saying like, this is the real Terminator sequel. And it's like, well, obviously not because you're doing your own thing a few years later. (laughs) And I think, I think after this film or something, the rights revert back to him finally, uh, for Terminator. So, um, who knows what will happen after this one, uh, but yeah, it'll be fun talking about the Terminator films with Arnold Schwarzenegger.
1: I'm looking forward to it. This this, is a, this has been a long time coming. We've been talking about doing this since the original sequel cast.
0: Right, almost as long as we've talked about doing the Dungeons and Dragons or Conan movies. <laughs> At least we did the Conan movies. Uh, only as a commentary, I thought. I thought. I thought we did... No, I could have sworn we
1: did both movies and then we did the commentary as a bonus episode.
0: I hmm, I'll have to look over the archive.
1: Yeah, we better check because if we didn't yeah. do that, we better correct that this year. Uh, yeah,
0: I need to I've been slowly putting up the episodes up online, the old episodes, so eventually everything will be up on there, and that's been fun to at least I get to put a new sort of episode image on there. Um and uh it yeah, we've been doing the show for over a decade now, and uh it's just amazing all the different shows we've done. All right, so for sequel cast, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same.
1: You know, I always wanted a set of wings. What the hell can young Sarah do? Some's got a hole of a soul that took control.
0: And the devil tried to break the blow. But it's a king of the kings, the lord of lords. A evil party and a torn sword.